Animal Magnetism, exploring animal care for creatures great and small, conservation and preservation in today's world. Find out what a single voice can do to make a difference in the lives of animals. Animal Magnetism with Carolyn Hennessy starts right now on UVN Radio. Good morning, listeners. Welcome, welcome once again. Listeners and viewers, we have a wonderful, wonderful guest. First of all, though, thank you for joining me again on Animal Magnetism. Yes, the show about preservation and conservation from an advocacy standpoint, <coughs> not a batshit crazy <laughs> activist standpoint. There we go. Just have to say that. Once again, I am joined by my co-host and producer, Andrea Compton, all the way uh, up in Washington. She joins us. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning. How are you, honey? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm spectacular now that I'm back, sort of back to doing this. I had to right. put the, had to put animal magnetism on hold for a couple of months while I was doing a play, listeners. That's right, a play. We are also joined by the Alpha and the Omega, as far as I'm concerned, in the animal advocacy world. My mentor, Gray Stafford, Doctor Gray Stafford, joining us from his home uh, just outside of Phoenix. Good morning, my friend. How are you? I'm great, and it wasn't just a play. It was a, a, an amazing performance, and I'm sorry that many of your listeners probably didn't get a chance to see it, but it was but, fantastic. But you did. You flew You flew out from Phoenix. God bless you. Bless you. Yeah, it was. Uh, yes, for, for those listeners who don't know, I was, pr- I was playing the great, great opera l- legend, diva Maria Callas, in a production of Masterclass at the Gary Marshall Theater. All the shows at the Gary Marshall Theater, I cannot recommend highly enough, even though I haven't even seen them. <laughs> They're going to do amazing, amazing work in this, their inaugural season. We are joined today by a man whose list of personal accomplishments is too long to actually go through all of them. But, uh, but we're going we're gonna to try and hit some of the highlights. Kartik Satyanaranyan. Did I get it even close? Yes, you did. Yes? Kartik Satyanaranyan. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! And as he says, it is probably the longest last name in uh, in India. He is the founder of Wildlife SOS, and which was founded in 1995 and is credited with ending the cruel dancing bear industry in India. Uh, uh, that alone is worth is worth everyone's time. The successful campaign ended, uh, included the rescue of over 600 bears while providing their captors with alternative means of earning a living that does not include exploiting wildlife. Today, the organization is, act- is actively working towards protecting Indian wildlife, conserving, ha- conserving habitats, studying biodiversity, conducting research, and creating alternative, sustainable livelihoods for erstwhile poacher communities. Uh, Kartik, welcome to the show. And again, uh, we're going to give you a welcome, and I'm going to read some of the things you've done. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, we're going to also talk about the reason that you are in Los Angeles, or will be in Los Angeles very soon, which is the Tusk After Dusk charity benefit to benefit Wildlife SOS. But let me just talk a little bit about what you've done in this your life. You are the co-founder and chairman of Wildlife SOS. You are a member of the IUCN Bear Specialist Group. I'm a sloth bear team expert. You are, you, you are on the Wildlife Crime Control Bureau. You are on the boards of the State Wildlife Advisory Board of the Government of Jammu and Kashmir, the Central Zoo's 
the Central Zoo Authority's Captive Elephant Evaluation Committee. You are a member of the government of India's Central Zoo Authority. You've conducted, conducted lectures on wildlife crime prevention, wildlife conservation at the Indira Gandhi Forensic National Forest Academy. The wildlife, you, you've conducted lectures at the Wildlife Institute of India, the National Institute of Criminology, and Forensic Sciences. You are the co-author of The Dancing Bears of India and Trade in Bears and Their Parts in India, A Threat to Conservation of Bears. What what you haven't done is is not even worth listing. I mean, it's just, and and it goes on from there, listeners. Uh, this The list of his accomplishments are, are extraordinary. My favorite is the fact that you speak Tamil, Hindi, Kannada, English, Malayalam, Te Telugu, Bengali, and Assamese. And I think all of those I got wrong, except for English. Uh, but you are, you're extraordinary. What a, what a wonderful, wonderful, extraordinary man. And thank you again for coming on the show. You, um, I, let me just give your official website about Wildlife SOS, wildlifesos.org. The Twitter handle is Kartik. K-A-R-T-I-C-K at Wildlife SOS Org. And the Facebook page is Wildlife SOS. Listeners, go and check out all of these. We're going to give them again at the end of the show. So, so Andrea usually starts off all of our interviews with a very, very simple question, and I'm going to let her take it away. Yes. Good morning, Cardit. Um, <coughs> we always like to ask our guests, what was that moment, what was that animal that you had a connection to that puts you on the path that you are on now? Well, I can't really tell you about one single animal that, that uh, did that, you know, right from when I was a little schoolboy, I used to rescue every animal I would see on the street while coming home from school. And it would be a bird with a broken wing or a, or a little critter, a squirrel baby or something like that. And that kind of just inspired me to keep continuing to help. And I think in a way, you know, snakes did change my life quite a bit. You know, they, they did teach me that, you know, animals with no ears, with no limbs, were eking out a, a, a means to survive. And, you know, human beings, because of their ignorance, were uh, putting an end to everything, you know, and, and damaging these animals. Moreover, when I started working in the jungle, I was fascinated by the by the forest, of course, and every possible living opportunity I would get, I would push off into the forest and sit on trees uh, near a waterhole on full moon nights and watch wildlife come to the waterhole to drink. And that taught me that it's important for us to protect the biodiversity before we lose it all. And, uh, and of course, sloth bears um, changed my life. I think, uh, you know, the fact that these shy bears were impossible to see in most cases, you can spot a tiger, but not a sloth bear that easily. And to see those shy animals being pulled out of their dens, their babies being separated from the mothers, the mothers being killed, and then being used as a street entertainment, I think changed everything. And we had to do something about it. So me and my colleague and co-founder, Geeta Seshamani, we established Wildlife SOS, and then there was no turning back. When you are talking about dancing bears in India, you are speaking of the sloth bears. Because when we think of dancing bears, we go back to sort of medieval, medieval England and, and you know, the, the large, the large like the brown bears or not necessarily the grizzly bears, but I mean large bears. But those are not the dancing bears of India. The dancing bears are the sloth bears, yes? That's correct. India does not have grizzly bears. Right, right. Really. 
we do have um, the, the Himalayan brown bear. We have four species of bears in India, but the sloth bears are the most endangered ones. And they're the ones that unfortunately get exploited. Yes, this is a sloth bear. I mean, they're cute, they're cuddly. They have a shaggy uh, mane of uh, fur and um, it, they're the only labiated bear. And uh, they're, they're fun, um, but unfortunately they're easily hunted and they get exploited quite What a is a labiated bear? Uh, the the lips, their lips are really large and they use it like a hoover so they can actually attach their lips to a big termite mound and then just do a big sucking noise. <laughs> and then they can just um, hoover up a whole bunch of termites of and ants. Of course. So how were they made to perform? How are they? T- I mean, uh, t- what is the dancing bear? And, and the people would gather around and the bear would be forced, trained to do to dance, to do several tricks, and, and they would, and they would, people would pay, people on the street would pay money for that. That's true, but what they would do, the training process for these bears was extremely brutal and, and cruel. They would remove the baby bears from their mothers. Basically, they would kill the mother, steal these babies from the dens, and then they would um, take them back to the village. And about four or five men would hold this little cub weighing about 300, 400 grams together, they would hold it down and then use a red hot iron poker and put a hole through its muzzle and sometimes through its cheek as well and then put a coarse thick rope through it. And then that wound would not be allowed to heal. Moreover, they would also use a metal rod and bash out all its teeth, uh, castrate male backups if, uh, if they happen to uh, be with them. And, um, and then basically that animal would live at the end of a four foot long rope for the rest of its life and, and perform this. So they only knew fear and pain as the two tools of training. And this was illegal from the year 1972 in India, but yet it went on in 1995, which is what we had to strive to put an end to. And do you, do you feel that you actually have put an end to all of it? Do you, do you see resurgence of it? Um, and what you did something that, which is, which is of course the normal logical thing to do, which is give these individuals who were practicing, uh, who were involved in the dancing bear trade, an alternative livelihood. So do you feel that it's, there's going to be, there's a resurgence, do you ever see it? And what is the alternative livelihood that you have given these individuals? So when we were faced by this um, problem, we realized that it was going to be a very complex situation. And, uh, you know, there were 3,000 families who depended on these bears for a livelihood. And if we did not bring about a sustainable, permanent solution, this was never going to end. And a lot of people told us, oh, it's a 400-year-old tradition. How are you going to put an end to it? You know, it might take over 50 years to put an end to something like that because it was a minority community. It was, you know, livelihoods. Uh, and these people were completely illiterate. So it was a very, very complex situation. So we went about it in a completely different way. We started working with the community and we started teaching them. Um, first, initially, we tried to find out what they wanted to do. And we found that each and every family had a dream in their minds. They wanted to have electricity. They wanted to have water. They did not have any health care. I mean, the women would walk five kilometers every day to bring a pot of water to cook and drink and feed the children. And uh, there was no education at all in the entire community. You know, the kids would be out there learning how to dance with their uh, dance pairs along with their uncles or their fathers. So we started working with the women initially. You know, they're the most um, more intelligent species of. (laughs) Well, simply cannot argue with that. (laughs) 
And uh, we started teaching them um, skills such as embroidery, tailoring, um, things like that. And that made them second in commoners for the family. And through winning their trust, we started sending the children to school and paying for their school fees and their books and the uniforms. And slowly they realized very quickly that there was this was a no brainer. You know, the kids got an education that would give them better opportunities in future careers. And most of the adults did not want this to be repeated, but they didn't know what else to do. And this is all they did. It was convenient, it was easy. They could easily make a quick buck on the side and they were lazy. So we had to force them to you know, get up and, and learn how to work differently. And we, even to this day, we send about 1,600 children to school. We pay for their school fees, their books, their uniforms, et cetera. So they get into mainstream education. Then the final challenge was to work with men uh, in the community and give them alternative livelihood. So we set up bank accounts for each of these people. They did not have any bank accounts. They didn't know how to even sign their own signature. They would use a thumbprint. And so we got them identity cards. We got them bank accounts. And then we helped each family with a seed fund if and only if they would sign an agreement with us and hand over their pair willingly and voluntarily. And it worked like, like a charm. I mean, really? initially we were very skeptical. We said, you know, we're going to give each family $2,000 equivalent in their bank. Uh, and we don't know if they will just use the money and then go back to bear dancing. Right. We don't right. want that. And so we microchipped every single bear. We had a very tight watertight agreement with each family but, uh, you know, the first man who came forward, you know, bought a tuk-tuk or an auto rickshaw, three-wheeler public mode of transport, which is common use, commonly used in India. And that gave him, you know, between 15 and $20 a day as a regular form of income, whereas the bear on the street, the bear performance, barely gave him, you know, 5 to $8. And that was a huge change that was, that was going to make a difference in their lives and elevate their quality of life. And once that happened and the entire community saw one man come and go away successfully, handing over his bear, he did not get arrested, although we could have, but we were able to request the forest department and the law enforcement agencies to give us this one opportunity to try and help them reform themselves. And, um, you know, it, it worked. It worked like a charm. And then there was no turning back. We had long queues of men trying to hand in the bear, surrender the bear and get a bank account. And... To this day, I don't know how we've, you know, successfully raised the resources, the financial resources required to do that, because I think there was some positive energy out there. You know, uh, somebody wanted us to do this and, and help the bears and help the people. By, by, but by helping the people, we were able to put a sustainable end to this whole 400-year-old brutal practice. We rehabilitated 3,000 families. We got, we established women empowerment projects. Wait, wait, wait. Three rehabilitated. 628 bears. 628 bears, 3,000 families. And these bears are all microchipped, so you can keep, you can keep tabs on them. Understand, know, know how they're doing. But I'm sure that once the, once the one man bought his tuk-tuk and started earning 15 to $20 a day, that he spread the word. Absolutely. Yeah. And it became... It, it spread like wildfire. Every community, every village wanted to connect with us and hand over. And we, we were running short of space. And then we worked with the government to expand our facilities. We set up four bear rehabilitation centers across India. The biggest one is in Agra, very close to the Taj Mahal, um, which is a world famous monument. And uh, it's 160 acres. We currently have about 200 bears that we have to feed 
single day. Uh, we Overall, we still have about 300 bears with us because every single bear came in with a lot of medical issues. Of they were course. completely abused. They've been completely traumatized. Of Most of them could not be released back in the oh, wild. No, no way. And uh, basically, we just give them a place where they can, you know, live with dignity, get good health, high degree of health care, veterinary attention. And uh, a lot of the youngsters from the Kalandar community, the community that used to exploit the bears, today works with us. 40% of our staff workforce is from this community as well. Really? And uh, so now they are serving the very bears that used to serve them. That used to serve them. You're, and you're talking about people who are illiterate. Did you also, I mean, you, you, sent, you sent the kids to school, which is wonderful, you know, training the next generation to totally abstain from this from this very, very brutal and cruel practice. But did you start teaching individuals how to read so that they could do more than sign, uh, more than, you know, sign with their thumbprint? Did you have literacy programs as well? We do. We worked with a local um, village um, strength building communities and we have local tuition classes to try and get these people to understand that and a lot of the men you know um, the older generation were not really willing it was quite challenging to get them to change oh, sure because men are stubborn and are not the most intelligent of the two of the two genders but that's all right well, well, no I, I only speak truth go ahead <laughs> so you are confident that there are no more dancing bears Absolutely, 100%. We took every single bear off the street. But we also have a national hotline in the unfortunate event that a dancing bear is spotted, you know, because there is still a small population of bears that are being exploited in the neighboring country of Nepal. And that's something that's out of our control. So we have anti-poaching uh, intelligence units that gather intelligence about poachers, about traffickers. And if any such bear is spotted, they immediately report it to us. And then we take the police and the forestry department in and we go in there and do a seizure and we confiscate the bear and rescue the, the bear from Have that Have you, is, is, or, or is there any way to make any, and I think Gray has a question, is there any way to make an inroad into Nepal? It is a bit of a challenge currently, but we are constantly trying to make inroads into Nepal. Okay. We have in the past, you know, rescued bears, repatriated them uh, into India and, and even fixed some of those situations. Sure. But um, it, is, it is a challenge because not all of the country of Nepal is under government control. Some of it is under military control. Yeah. Some areas are extremely unsafe uh, and it becomes challenging to work in some of those areas. My goodness. You know, in a safe manner that will allow you to retrieve your staff back later uh, on. Of course. Yes, yes, yes. Your staff. Because I want to talk about some the fact that you have been... Some people, some of your anti-poachers, your anti-poachers, anti -poacher, I'm all right. It's somehow, for some reason, it's still very early for me. I don't know why. But your staff has been abducted, kidnapped, held hostage. But I think Gray had a, did you, Gray, did you have a question? I did. Um, <clears throat> first of all, this is fantastic work that you're doing and have been doing. But I'm curious about the animals themselves that you've rescued now. Some of them have probably lived with your facilities for 10, 15, maybe 20 years how do the animals adjust afterwards? What, what do you, you know, I'm always amazed at the capacity of animals to heal, not just physically, but behaviorally. Um, <clears throat> how, are, how are generally the animals doing now that they've been rescued and have this, this life that you provided them? Well, you know, when these animals come to us, they're in quite a bad shape. You know, their teeth have been badly 
damaged. Uh, they've got huge dental cavities. So first thing we have to do is basically anesthetize the pair and surgically remove that rope that's been embedded. In some cases, it's been embedded using a metal nail or something that kind of stays in there. Once that is done, we then um, try and get this um, teeth issue attended to because it makes them very cross. And you can imagine the amount of pain any of us would suffer if we had a chronic dental issue. And so we've done hundreds of root canal surgeries to fix this. So we had special teams of veterinary dentists who came down and engineered special tools to deal with the long uh, roots that these bears had. And then we, we fixed that. But post that, it is basically a rehabilitation effort that we have to constantly work with them using gentle voices, um, giving them a lot of patience, giving them all the attention that they need to address the, the issue of trauma. And some of them recover sooner and some of them take longer. The longer they've been suffering as a, as a captive bear in the hands of this community, the longer it sometimes takes them to recover from that. Do you have a special bear, a bear that is close to your heart? I think all of them are special for me, yeah. but they've been a couple like that bear that you showed, which was on my back. Her name was Jasmine and she was very, very uh, dear to me. There was a couple of, there's a bunch of other bears. Yes, that one, that is Jasmine. And um, uh, several other bears. I mean, I would not be, I would be lying if I said there were a few special bears, but you know, all of them are very special. They need every bit of attention. Of course, and they, care do. They, of course they do. Now you have turned your, uh, considerable efforts to elephants and conserving elephants, preserving and, and, and stopping anti-poachers, st stopping poachers from killing elephants. There are a few facts <coughs> about elephants, which I think my listeners may already know, but because they're very, very smart. But an elephant is killed every 15 minutes for its ivory. The illegal wildlife trade is one of the world's most lucrative global industries. For some reason, I, I don't think I knew that it was that extensive. Um, scientists estimate that we are now losing species at 1,000 to 10,000 times the natural background rate due to human activity. Dozens of species are going extinct every day, roughly about 150 every day. Um, so tell us about your efforts with, re with regard to saving elephants. Well, when we resolved the whole issue with the bears, we realized that there was still some time left and we could address the problem of elephants as well, because it is, you know, since time immemorial, India has been worshipping elephants. Uh, elephants are very holy to, to Hindus in India and uh, Hindus around the world. And, uh, you know, Lord Ganesh, who is um, the god of good beginnings, is someone that everybody prays to yeah. and, and believes in. But it's ironic and, and sad that, you know, the same embodiment of this God, Ganesh, is being abused and treated in such a horrible manner in India, in the same country that worships him. So it's almost, uh, it's almost shocking. And the process that is used for uh, training a wild captured elephant, every elephant that you see in India in a temple or in a circus, um, or in a tourist camp where it's taking people for rides, oh, yeah. you know, these elephants have been captured from the wild, separated from their herds as young animals, as babies, as calves. And then they're basically tied up in a kraal and beaten for months on end, six to eight months sometimes, in order for them for, to have their spirit broken, following which they, they get 
they accept submission. They accept being ridden, having someone ride on their backs. I mean, which wild animal in its senses is going to allow you to ride it on its back? No, no animal would do that. So for some people, it might be a dream come true to be able to ride an elephant, but it's the elephant's worst nightmare. In order for that elephant to be ridden or to be kept captive or to perform tricks or to be in a temple, the, the amount of cruelty, abuse and harassment and lifelong trauma that these elephants suffer, it's just unmentionable. I think, you know, people could not suffer that even for a day. And, and survive. These animals live all their lives surviving this. So um, we'll spare you the videos and, and for the details because it is it is extremely traumatic to watch these elephants be. No, I I, 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 yes, I I don't think I need to to see any more uh, animals being traumatized. I've seen I've seen quite enough. I can imagine. I so can we imagine. we decided to try and make a difference. To the elephants and and the only way we could do that in a in a sustainable way that would work across India was to create a living breathing example of humane and scientific management so wildlife SOS um, and Gita and I established um, the elephant conservation and care center mm -hmm. in um, 2009 and we've now been running for nearly seven to eight years We've rescued 26 elephants 26. so far. 26. I was going to ask you how many you, you had rescued thus far. We'd, we've rescued 26 elephants so far. And each of these elephants have come from extremely traumatized uh, conditions. Many of them have been held illegally. Many of them have been held captive in extremely brutal and unacceptable conditions. I'm and, sorry. In, I'm sorry. In, in what, what? In unacceptable conditions? I understand. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And... <coughs> I think you have a dog. Wait, over yes, Grace Jog. Um, My dog, Fee, I apologize. Do you have something to say? No, <laughs> we can add him. No, I'm just a really bad trainer. Gray's <laughs> one of the foremost trainers in the country. <laughs> and yes, that's true, Gray. What's going on? At any rate, so so you, you, started, you started with, you, you now have 26 elephants. We've rescued 26 elephants so far. But it's very but dangerous. It's very. It, it can be extremely dangerous when these when, because the elephant doesn't necessarily know that it's going on to a better life. Here, it's been traumatized. So, how, how can it be? How can it be dangerous? Well, um, it it is. Most of these rescue operations are pretty dangerous because we are also working with a lot of hostile people right. who prevent want to prevent us from taking that elephant out of that situation. So that certainly is a situation that we have to deal with. But in addition to that, if you you're dealing with an elephant that is a complete stranger to us, it doesn't know, like you said, it doesn't know that we are taking it to a different place, a kind of place, and a place where it will not be brutalized any further. However. You know, you would wonder that the elephant is not going to know that. But we've what we've seen is very different. I mean, although we go anticipating that the elephant is not going to know that, this, they are extremely intelligent animals. You know, they are sentient beings and feel emotions very strongly. Yes. And I think they sense it every time that we are in a, in a rescue operation. I seem to feel that they sense what's going on. And, you know, they cooperate with us much more than they would have if they did not. And uh, each of these rescue operations has been quite a nightmare. Um, we have to work with the police, with the forestry department, with the enforcement authorities to try and go into these locations. Many of these rescue operations are done at night, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., because we are trying to avoid huge hostile mobs of people who will 
who can endanger the lives of our staff and uh, jeopardize the operation itself. The other challenge, of course, is you know to get the infrastructure in place for the elephant conservation and care center. So that's an ongoing challenge that we are dealing with. So one, one message I do have for anybody who's listening in is please don't ever ride an elephant and don't That's, support. That, oh, believe me, when I have friends. A circus or a temple. Yep. Um, I, I think that, that, is, uh, that is something that we have to deal with. Exactly. And this is primarily exactly. a problem in India and in Southeast Asia, I think, where that, that goes on. So any of you traveling to these countries, please do not support or give money no. to any of these facilities. You I want tell to all of my friends who are traveling you, to... Thailand, uh, no, to Chiang Mai, and I say, please do not go to the performing camps. If you do, please do not ride an elephant, because while you just see, you know, a mahout, you know, sort of tapping what might be gently to, a, you know, to an elephant on, on its ear, the training, the brutal training, the submission that that elephant has had to, uh, has been forced to accept is is something ho- horrific. And as you say, we, we couldn't stand one day of it. And so I, I caution everyone I know who's going to India or Thailand or Cambodia, please do not get on the back of an elephant. Now we have to convince all the cruise lines, the travel, the travel bureaus, the, uh, the people who put a performing camp on their itinerary to drop that performing camp. And again, find a different a different way to make a living. So what do you offer to the individuals who, like the temples, uh, the, the riding of the elephant in India, what do you offer them, these 26, these 26 entities from which you took the elephants, what have you offered them as an alternative livelihood? Well, in many of these cases, you know, they were breaking the law and they were not supposed to be having an elephant at all. So the law enforcement did the job of facilitating okay. the confiscation. And these people did not really want, or did they, they did not have the ability or the authority to get another elephant. So there was not a livelihood issue. See, that's the primary issue between the bears and the elephants. Gotcha. The bears was, the dancing bears was a livelihood for a poor community. Elephants is a big business. It is wealthy, rich people own elephants or temple trusts that hold own elephants it's not our livelihood it is a matter of prestige it's a it's a status symbol almost so it's a very different way that we have to deal with this particular issue it is not a livelihood issue anymore but what we do offer the mahouts or the elephant keepers who work with those elephants is employment so we offer them employment and in many cases we've actually been able to recruit them give them much better wages give them medical insurance food clothing and a, a greater way of working with the elephant and a safer way of working with the elephant because mm-hmm. we've we're probably the only facility in india where we've introduced protected contact mechanism as well which enables the elephants to have their freedom nobody needs to manage them using you know um, cruel implements yeah. uh, etc and uh, and it also keeps the people safe who work with the elephants. Tell us about Raju, the elephant that that you know we has 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 the stain going down its face that some people think are tears. It might be must. It might be we we're, we're we're not sure. Again, absolutely, elephants are one of the four smartest animals on the planet, and their capacity to feel and understand is goes beyond I think human capacity to feel and understand. But tell us about Raju and that and that rescue, and tell us about that elephant for my listeners who don't know. 
Well, we'd heard about Raju for some time and we've been trying to get intelligence on his location. It was impossible because he was missing for a long time. And eventually when the forest department told us that, you know, we've, we think we might have a location on him, then we sent our informer teams out there to go locate him. And we found that he was being held captive in a park inside a, um, like a children's park or something where I think, you know, the people who were holding him captive did not think that anybody would suspect that he was being hidden over there. So we worked with the forestry department and the police to go in there and uh, get an idea of the situation. In fact, I had to go undercover and I pretended to be someone reading a newspaper in the morning and I was filming, I had torn a hole in the newspaper and I was filming through that. <laughs> to uh, confirm that the elephant was indeed Raju and it was uh, indeed there and to kind of understand and suss out the location as to how we would conduct this rescue operation later on in the evening. And uh, about 6 p.m. in the evening, the police, we had a 70, 80 people strong police force. <coughs> force uh, and we started approaching the situation and, um, you know, going forward to work with, uh, with the people who had the elephant uh, captive. Uh, basically, they, you know, it was illegal. They had no documentation whatsoever. Right. They were not supposed to have that elephant. And it had already been confiscated by the forestry department earlier, but they had taken it back on temporary custody, which the court had permitted. But again, they were con continuing to abuse that elephant. He was in a completely messed up state. I mean, we did not think he would survive. He was, he was that close to death, in our opinion. Wow. which is why we had to kind of step in and um, and and start the rescue operation. But at, at about 6.30 p.m. when we got in, they said, well, give us 20 minutes and then you can come and take the elephant if you can. So so we trusted them and the police told us, well, give them 20 minutes. What's, what's wrong in that? And so we waited and they came back 20 minutes later with a big smirk on their faces saying, well, now let's see you try and take him from here. So we realized something was wrong and we rushed over there. And what they had done was they had basically used these spiked anklets, you know, two inch long spikes, which had kind of gone into his feet all around. And they chained him on all four legs using that. Uh, and they'd also whipped oh. him, they'd speared him. Basically, they had gotten him so upset and angry that, um, you know, he was just mad and he was frightened. He was scared and he was... He was mad. He was urinating. He was defecating. He was that scared. Basically, they made it impossible for us to take it, take the chains off and walk him because he was already upset at that point of time. So we then had to work with him from 6.30 p.m. that evening till about 3 to 4 a.m. in the morning to kind of calm him down. We just sat down, camped around him, and there was it was near a swampy area as well. So we were surrounded by hordes and hordes of mosquitoes and so we would be being eaten up alive by those mosquitoes as did you, well. You, you took so the chains off of him, though, yes? You, you, took the cha you took the chains off of his feet while you were waiting. No, we could not. So we had to... He was extremely aggressive. He was picking up branches and stones and chucking it at us. And he even injured a couple of our staff. But that was the goal that those people had in mind. They did not want us to be able to take that elephant off, its, uh, off the chains. That was their goal. And if we waited till it was daylight, which was about 5.30 or 6 a.m., then it would be impossible for us to get out of there because they would then have additional forces, hostile mobs who would come and surround us and prevent us from getting out of that location. That was their plan. And so we worked from 7 p.m., 6.30, 7 p.m. onwards that night, all the way till about 3 a.m. in the morning, several hours, 
eight hours nearly sitting down, calming him down, giving him little pieces of bananas to eat and, you know, giving him little pieces of watermelon, trying to sedate him and calm him down. But eventually at about 4 a.m. in the morning, we were able to loosen some of the chains, take some of the chains off. And that was when I took that photo with the stain down the eye. And it's certainly not must because must is from the temporal gland on the side, mm. not from the eye. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, and he was, you know, an, an elephant only comes into must when he has a very good body condition. Mm, all right. You know, skeletal elephants and elephants who are completely malnourished do not come into mass, at least not to my knowledge. And um, so I asked my veterinarian, I mean, that elephant looks like it's crying. I mean, it's got this huge gushes of tears coming down its eyes or or some kind of fluid. And so my veterinarian actually told me they're very emotional animals. I mean, they do feel pain and they can be emotive. And um, it it does look like, you know, he is absolutely in, in in a lot of pain. And so when we loosened everything, and we just tried, tried to, you know, walk him to the truck. And it was like at about 4.30 a.m. It was like he understood finally what we were trying to do. And we were not there to harm him anymore. And he actually cooperated and walked with us yeah. to the truck that was waiting outside all night to get him out of that location. And it was very emotional for all of us that we were able to achieve this. We finally took him on that truck and we got out of there just before daylight. And we had to have police escort jeeps take us, escort us all the way out of that district so we would ensure safety for the teams and our, and the elephant. Question for you, the individuals that said, give us 20 minutes, and I'm, I'm assuming you will never give anybody 20 minutes again. I'm assuming that that's, that's just a given, right? Of course Absolutely. not. Of course not. So the individuals that said, give us 20 minutes, who then went and brutalized this elephant further, were they taken into custody? Was any punishment meted out to them? They were all taken to custody immediately. So that's what we did because we did not want them to create further damage. I requested the police to take them all into custody. Were so they, they were punished? locked up for the night. Were they, were they punished in any way for doing that? Problem is that, you know, the laws in India take a long time for conviction to come. So we did have cases filed against them, but they got out on bail. And it takes the legal process for conviction is quite a long one. It can sometimes take years and years to get that done. But we have legal teams that are working on these cases. We have several elephant cases, I think over 30 cases in court that we are working with at the moment. And our legal team is is constantly following up these cases. So the the police and the forestry service have sometimes they've got information about where certain certain elephants are, but they they themselves do not have the equipment the the storage space, so to speak, to go in and take the elephants themselves. That's why they need to call you. Yes? Well, we work in collaboration with the forestry department in most of these states. Right. And, you know, the, the, the gain of doing a collaboration is because they are the law enforcement agency. And we have the facility, the trained staff, and the ability to help them and assist them. So it's a, it's a nice kind of a collaboration where two agencies work together to achieve this. And we've been working with them very closely on that particular case. And most cases, we, we do everything in collaboration with government agencies because you do need that, um, that, indem- that indemnity in a way to, um, you know, to be able to do take law enforcement to another of level. Of, of course. Gray, Andrea, questions? Uh, Kardik, this is, um, your story is just, I mean, it's amazing uh, what you've done and, and the experiences you've, you've shared with us already. And I'm, I'm taken by the fact that on the one hand with the bears, you are 
providing an entrepreneurial solution. And in, in the case of the elephants uh, and that criminal activity, that criminal activity, you are working with law enforcement. Um, how do you take those two different, I mean, it's a, it, to me, it illustrates how complex wildlife preservation really is, right? So how do you take the lessons from those situations and apply it to uh, human-animal conflict in India, but also maybe the situation, how would you apply it to, say, Africa and the elephant situation there, which is not necessarily a law enforcement issue, it's an economic issue, it's a social issue as well. So what lessons can we take from your model and apply it more globally? I would say that, um, you know, most people, um, you know, are not bad people. I mean, people don't want to, you know, go out and, and be brutal and cruel and mean. But I think circumstances and, you know, lack of ability to um, get themselves on their own feet force them to do that. So sometimes it's important to understand, you know, research and understand, get to the depth of the matter, get to the bottom of it to find out if it's a socioeconomic issue, is it a social issue, is it a cultural issue, or is it just plain goddamn greed? And when it's that, then you have no choice but to use strict law enforcement and, um, and legal, um, you know, litigative mechanisms to address those issues. But if it's a mix, a complex mix, and it's often a complex mix of social, socioeconomic, cultural, and then some of those lead to greed from other people who then incentivize these communities and exploit them to, to take advantage of them. Then I think we've got to follow all of those little steps in order to achieve it, you know, provide education to the community, because I think education is a, I mean, once that's injected into someone, there is no way that that person will want to go out and do something like begging on a street with a bear or exploiting animals or, or doing something that breaks the law, because they understand that once they're breaking the law, then the punishment and all of that, you know, they become aware of that. Ignorance is out of the box then. And the second thing is, is of course, empower them to think, empower them to understand and empower them to solve their own problems by addressing their you know, economic issues, giving them advice, giving them suggestions. Sometimes all it needs is just giving them an opportunity, you know, facilitate a bank loan. Like we've done that several times. All we do is you know, we give the ba bank a guarantee and we say, okay, we give them three months and you extend the loan and this is what we are putting down as a guarantee. And in three months, if things work out well, then you can switch the guarantee from us to, to the vehicle that we've given him or something like that. And it works very well. That's genius. So sometimes a little spark can move them and elevate them into a, into a much more stable socioeconomic yeah. background. Yeah. Um, we only have a few moments left, and I want to talk about the reason that you have come to the United States, which is Tusk After Dusk, the wonderful gala that is going to benefit Wildlife SOS. It's a red carpet charity gala. The benefit will take place, listeners, at the Bardot Room at the Avalon Theater in Hollywood on November 4th, coming up from 6 to 10 p.m. You can actually meet Kartik if he's not mobbed by me or if, if I have not monopolized his time and, and conversation. Um, it's going to be wonderful. An inspiring evening featuring, featuring the electrifying concert with world groove instrumentalists, Metar, Lily Hayden, AMNL, Nolan Gould from, not, from Modern Family, Jennifer Conrad, Patty Shankar, uh, founder of the Animal Advocacy Museum, Kip Anderson, director of What the Health, 
Cowspiracy and Sean Marquette of the Goldbergs, and radio personality Mark Thompson of Mark and Brian will MC the event. Please, please, if you would, if you are interested in tickets, go to www.tuskafterdusk.com. Please, please, and if you cannot attend, donate. It's as simple as that. Kartik, thank you so much. I look forward. I look forward to meeting you next Saturday, um, and monopolizing your time as I will. Um, great. Thank you again. Uh, your intelligence is, is a beacon for all of us to sort of walk toward. Andrea, my love, thank you so much for being with us and for producing this show in your usual inimitable fashion. And, Kartik, will you please come on again? We can, we can Skype you from India or we can Zoom you from India if you'd like. And also, may I come visit? Absolutely. In fact, Wildlife SOS, the Elephant Conservation Care Center and the Bear Rehabilitation Center both are open for volunteers. And we strongly encourage everyone to come and volunteer with us. So you don't have to go see an elephant in a temple or a circus or a monument, but you can come and walk with them, work shoulder to shoulder with our teams on the ground, get you know dirt under your fingernails, so to say, and, uh, and enjoy looking after these elephants. You know, get up close and, and you can spend... A, amazing amount of time with these elephants and we provide accommodation and food and a safe environment to work with and make sure that you have a meaningful vacation and um, at the same time contribute to the local communities and to the elephants and Wonderful. the bears when you're there. Wonderful. So you, and must, the, the thing you can learn all about volunteering on wildlifesos.org. Our Facebook is Wildlife SOS India and our Twitter is at Wildlife SOS. Wonderful, wonderful. I love the fact, most importantly, that you are really getting to the next generation because that's the generation that's really going to spread the word. Thank you so much for being on the show. Listeners, what an amazing show today. Um, and we are going to have him back, come hell or high water, uh, if you would agree to come, come, come on again. And I will be going to India at some point uh, and, uh, and maybe doing, doing a couple of shows from there. Wouldn't that be fun? Thank you for listening and watching Animal Magnetism. We look forward to seeing you again in two weeks. Always remember, in everything you do, oh, by the way, thank you, Tony Sweet, the handsomest man in radio, in everything you do, really attempt to cultivate the preservationist heart. It will take you a long, long way, and you'll be a happier, uh, more well-rounded individual if you attempt to do that. Animals are our friends. We need them. They don't need us. So let's make sure that we care for all of them as best we can. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Something tells me it's all happening at the zoo. I do believe it. I do believe it's true.